Before becoming president of Vernavare, Chris Hall was a professor of theology. He was later the dean of Palmer Theological Seminary and then the chancellor at Eastern University. During those years, he worked as associate editor with Thomas Oden on the ancient Christian commentaries on scripture. This was a massive undertaking, 29 large volumes of biblical commentary, bringing together the wisdom and thoughts of the church fathers on scripture. He since went on to write a series of four practical guides, bringing theological insight from the early church. He just finished the latest edition. It's titled, Living Wisely with the Church Fathers. And as Renovari's book club begins working with this text, I sat down with Chris and explored what some of these ancient Christians might have to teach us today. And in this, he put some historical pieces together for me that I found really helpful. My name is Nathan Foster, and welcome to the Renovari Weekly Podcast. Chris. Hi, Nate. You wrote another book. Yes, I did. Well done. <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> okay. I feel a very small part of connection to this book because if you remember when we were in Phoenix some time ago, you had just pushed send on the manuscript when we were at the retreat and I saw you walking across. And you had a huge smile Elated, on your face. smiling, yes. done. <laughs> it's interesting how all this happened. Yeah, tell us. I don't, I don't know if uh, listeners would be aware of the progression that's taken place. So oh, back in 1998, uh, IVP, Varsity uh, Press, academic, their academic wing, asked if I would write a, a little handbook to the ancient Christian commentary on scripture. So that was a very uh, long project. It's 29 volumes of, of church fathers' commentaries on uh, the scripture. So the church fathers are basically ancient Christian leaders. Most of them, as was the case uh, in the early church, most of them uh, men, some women uh, leading in monastic context and so on. So anyway, these were folks who were recognized by the church as being uh, holy people. They'd left behind a body of work that the church uh, communally had read and tested and had come to be relied upon as reliable sources for helping us understand the meaning of the Bible. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, by the Orthodox Church, big O, by the Roman Catholic Church, and by the Anglican Church. Now, now in uh, Protestant circles, uh, I'm thinking specifically of evangelical circles, uh, they're, they're being read more and more. So the, so the ancient Christian commentary series, which we had hoped, since these were big books and expensive books, we were hoping uh, that we might be able to sell a thousand copies of each volume, which would, if my <laughs> math is correct, been 29,000 volumes, and most publishers would have been happy with that. Well, what happened with the larger series, which indicates an interest in how people in our family, but from a different time in a different place, thought about important things. We, we're so surprised now that I, I think it's 850,000 copies 
of those big books what? have sold. Yeah, 850,000. And those aren't cheap books, right? I no, mean, now they've gone up to 40, I think they're 50 or $60 a volume. Wow. Friends listening in, I'm not making a lot of money on this series. <laughs> well, it was a huge collaboration, right? You worked on with Yeah, Thomas it wasn't Oden just me. And, it was Tom yeah. Oden and me and a whole team of scholars. Mm-hmm. Big financial mm-hmm. investment from some contributors to see this produced. And then what happened was, because the material is new for lots of folks, uh-huh. and because the way the church fathers tend to read the Bible is new for lots of folks, we felt that there was a need for, for a, what uh, Augustine would have called an incaridia, a okay. little handbook, like a handbook, uh-huh. Uh-huh. just to help people move into the series. So I wrote that book, and it, it, it was on how the church fathers interpret the Bible. Mm-hmm. How they interpret the Bible was called reading scripture with the church fathers. When that one was finished, I thought I was done. But then uh, uh, Dan Reed, in particular, at InterVarsity, uh, thought in talking with me, well, why don't we do one on theology, uh, key areas of theology where they had lots of good things to say. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, they're really foundational for a lot of what Christians affirm to be true uh, today in terms of the meaning of, G- of the, what the Trinity is, for example, what Christians mean when they speak of the Trinity, uh, the incarnation, the nature of the church, and so on. Mm-hmm. So that was the second book. Mm-hmm. Was, was that the worshiping with the church the, fathers? No, that's the third one. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Get ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> so this is, this is what's called learning theology with the church fathers. Okay, okay. So it was kind of Trinity, incarnation, sin and evil, grace, uh, the resurrection of, of the dead, and so on. Mm-hmm. Really important areas for all these folks. And so, for example, because of the resurrection of the dead, you will be meeting them all someday, <laughs> I would expect. And then we move on to, uh, so then once we'd moved past that book, so we had how they read the Bible, key theological areas to explore together with them. It hit us that we didn't have anything on worship. So I wrote a book, uh, it was the third in the series, called Worshiping with the Church Fathers. So there's the first, there's a couple chapters at the beginning. One is on baptism because of the important place baptism played in the early church's uh, mind and heart and understanding of the Bible. And then the <clears throat> second area that we talked about was the Eucharist and the importance of communion or the Eucharist service, uh, what the Catholics would call the Mass. Uh, was for the early uh, Christian community. And th- then the second half of the book, something we've talked about before, was desert spirituality. Right. Mm-hmm. St. Anthony the Great and so on. Mm-hmm. So th- after all three books had come out, I thought I was done. <laughs> and then I realized that we hadn't said anything about what these ancient Christians thought about key ethical issues. Uh-huh. You know, issues that had to do with family life, issues that had to do with how we live as sexual beings before mm-hmm. God, how, mm-hmm. how can we live well and in a holy way, um, issues regarding wealth and poverty, issues regarding, inter- interestingly enough, entertainment, <laughs> uh, issues regarding um, war and and can Christians engage in war? Can they be members of the army? 
uh, is that justified? Is that allowed? And so on. Issues regarding, uh, uh, in this book, I included an issue on the martyrs. Mm-hmm. And why were the martyrs so admired in terms of how they lived their lives? So the entire the, the entire book is about ancient Christian perspectives, the perspectives of perspectives of the leaders of the church at that time, mm-hmm. all of whom, almost all of these folks were bishops of the church, or uh, sometimes uh, what were called lectors, some deacons, but. Mm-hmm. Most most of them, uh, bishops, leaders of the church and and the church's structure, and what they thought about key areas of human life. So then, out of this huge project that you were involved with, then putting together four books that just kind of give helpful cliff notes of sort for people. Well, uh, yeah, I think that's a that's a good way to that's a good way to put it. I wouldn't wanting that I wouldn't want people reading the four books that I've written, the ones we've talked about, and mm-hmm. thinking, well, now now uh, right. I've got it. Right. I right. would want want them to use these cliff notes as a is <laughs> a is a, a little bit insulting, <laughs> but I, but I uh, I would want them to be be able to use them. They're meant to be aids in helping people step into a world that initially, mm-hmm. because of of the language used the way they will tend to express themselves on given topics mm-hmm. initially seem uh, a bit foreign, a bit intimidating, a bit inaccessible. So these are meant to be handbooks where you can read these books and uh, I'll, I'll quote extensively throughout these books uh, from the fathers, but I'm hoping that people, when they read what the fathers are saying about a given issue, then people would be motivated to begin well, in all likelihood is a, a lifelong project of getting to know these folks. Right, right. There's a very large body of work to become familiar with. And I think that this last book, Nate, that we were talking about, Living Wisely with the Church Fathers, the one on their ethics, from what I'm hearing, people are finding this book to be particularly accessible and these ideas to be particularly interesting because they're intersecting with so many ethical issues that that we as the, as the church are facing today. Yeah, so these these four categories then, how the, the church fathers viewed scripture, and then theology, worship, and then yeah. now ethics and kind of living. Yeah, that's practical right. Pieces. That's right. What, just, just to help people know, when you say church fathers, can you give me a, a little sense of who you're talking about and the dates in which they, who gets in that canon of church fathers, huh? Yeah, that's a good question because not all ancient Christians are in would be called church fathers. Though I, uh, it's a it's a fairly uh, specific term. So the time period that we're talking about is from the second century. This is all after Jesus's time. So from the second century, generally speaking up through the 8th century. One of the last church fathers that folks would be interested in, if memory serves me correctly, uh, lived in the 8th century, meaning the 700s, Mm -hmm. uh, a man by the name of John of Damascus, who's who's a really wonderful uh, writer and and thinker. So here are the qualifications. See if I can just do this from memory. (laughs) Okay. So So one is 
antiquity, meaning once you move into the medieval period or later post-Reformation, post-Reformation or modern, you don't find this phrase being used of Christian leaders and thinkers. Mm -hmm. So it's one that has to do with the time period I mentioned, so antiquity. Mm -hmm. And the second is, which I really like, holiness of life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if the church at that, at that time looked at someone who, say, seemed to be bright, able to write well and think well, but that person was not living a holy life, meaning a life in line with what they were teaching, they wouldn't be considered a church father. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean that these folks didn't have some of them irascible personalities in their own personal struggles and so on. But generally speaking, generally speaking, someone who, if you looked at their entire life, you would see Christ present in their life mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and at work in their life and, a, and uh, a reflection of the holiness of God in an image bearer's life. So those are the first two, antiquity, holiness. And then the next is a body of written work, a body of written work that <clears throat> the church as a community could look at and examine and test. So one of the reasons why Origen, O-R-I-G-E-N, who is a, a great biblical exegete, Origen is not normally spoken of as a church father is some of his ideas uh, were later to be declared not within the guidelines of orthodox uh, thinking. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. so he says lots of stuff. He, sure, he surely uh, that, that's worth reading and so on. But he had a, had ideas uh, had ideas made about the preexistence of the soul and um, that souls preexisted without bodies first and then came into bodies, but but had a, another uh, existence apart from bodies. Hmm. Uh, it was it's fairly tangled, and then he also had the idea that the church still still uh, debates and hasn't bought into, which is that the idea of uh, uni universal salvation. Salvation. Origen argued that, for example, uh, even the devil himself would finally be saved. Hmm. And so the church, you know, in community, the church looked at some of these ideas, said, "No, we can't buy that. Can't buy that." So he wouldn't. He would not be quite, uh, normally uh, viewed as a church father, but as an ancient Christian writer worth reading, surely. So in antiquity, holiness, antiquity, of life. holiness, life—a body of work that's been left behind. And and this is one of the reason, reasons because people rightly ask, well, what about church mothers? Mm -hmm, Where mm -hmm. there there were women who were uh, gifted theologians gifted theologians. Um, Macrina was the sister of uh, Basil the Great and Gregory of Nyssa, their, their sister. And both of them said she, she was the best theologian, the greatest theologian in the family. She was our teacher. The this. problem was, in terms of a body of work, in that period of time, which was a, a, a time of significant hi hierarchy and patriarchy, uh -huh. uh, these folks just didn't get printed the way that some of the male uh, leaders would. Mm -hmm. 
That's so we don't we, we we don't yeah we don't we don't have uh, this body of work that we can look at. Mm-hmm. With there's a recent book out. I've got it up here. Christian women in the patristic world uh, by Lynn Kohick and a, a friend of hers. Uh, maybe it's Patricia Hughes. I can't quite see on my bookshelf where they do write about some of these very gifted women in the history of the church. Mm-hmm. Women who are written about, interestingly, oftentimes in the context of martyrdom. So some of the great martyrs of the church were women. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the great leaders of monastic communities in the Egyptian desert. Some of these communities, in, the, in as large as I believe, five or 6,000 women, were women leading these monastic communities. But in terms of uh, a large body of work, uh, we don't always get that. And and I have to admit that sometimes uh, some of the folks uh, leading the church uh, just didn't think it was uh, appropriate for uh, women to have this kind of role. Right. Not not everybody, because you do find you do find the fathers uh, talking about their friendships with women. Mm-hmm. One of John Chrysostom's best friends was Olympias, uh, deaconess in the church in Constantinople. Okay, so give give me the list of who is typically thought of in that club. Let's do the eight great, what are called the eight great doctors of the church. Okay. And a doctor is not a medical doctor like we use the term today. A doctor is a teacher. Docere is the Latin infinitive means to teach. So. You had four great, four great, see if I can remember this, four great uh, doctors in the East, teachers in the East. Okay. So you have John Chrysostom, as I say it. Some say Chrysostom means golden mouth. He was one of the great preachers. You have John Chrysostom, you have Basil the Great, and then you have his close friend Gregory of Nazianzus, and then the great bishop of Egypt and of Alexandria, Athanasius. So you have Athanasius, Gregory of Nazianzus, Basil the Great, and John Chrysostom. So the they're, they're all Eastern fathers, okay. meaning, meaning they live in the Eastern part of the Roman Empire. Uh, for for the, uh, almost all of what they're writing, they're writing in Greek. Constantinople, which then Greek Orthodox. Yeah, Constantinople. John John Chrysostom was in Constantinople, which was what we'll call one of the, well, I'll put it this way, one of the great centers of the church, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what were called the great seas of the church, S-E-E-S. So you had a, one of the great centers was, was in Alexandria and Egypt, mm-hmm. Jerusalem, Antioch up in Syria, and then over in uh, Constantinople. And Rome? Mm-hmm. Was Rome one of them? Now, now, when we start talking about the West, ah. yeah, you would you would be talking about Rome. Those were and all so Eastern. You, those are Eastern. So you have Got Eastern it. churches who are it's all one church at this point in time, uh, other than the Copts down in um, in Egypt and some churches. Uh, the Coptics. Yeah, the oh, Copts. You said yeah. the Copts. I'm thinking police. So oh. yes. <laughs> 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 no, that's not who I'm speaking of. So you have, uh, generally speaking, one large church up to up to 1054, up to uh, over a thousand years, one church. But it's but it, you have Greek speaking Christians in the East, Latin 
Speaking Christians in the West. Mm-hmm. You've got people writing, in, for the most part, in Greek, some in Syriac, some in Coptic, and then you, most part in Greek. And then we, once you move West, you're moving toward Rome. So imagine yourself moving across Egypt toward the West, mm-hmm. toward countries today like Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria, and so on. You're moving West. As you, the further West you move, you start moving from areas of where folks are speaking Greek to where they're speaking a North African language like Berber, mm-hmm. or a lot of the folks, they're speaking Latin because you're moving into the Western part Up into of the Roman, Roman, yeah, Roman Empire. And so they're speaking in Latin. So you have four great Western doctors, teachers. Okay. So you, so you have Augustine. Not Who's to from, be confused if, with St. Augustine. That's right. I was told <laughs> that once in a graduate course with the, from a professor wasn't high, thinking very highly of me when I said Augustine. August, Augustine, St. Augustine is a city in Florida. <laughs> I seem to remember him saying. Do you know how so many, many people I have correct me when I say where I live? And they, oh, yeah? yeah they say, they st- oh, could you, will you say St. Augustine? I say St. Augustine, and then people oh. will go, and then they'll kind of talk it back. St. Augustine. Oh, I see. No, nice I got you. Yeah. Well, anyway, Augustine. Yes. Who is generally recognized is uh, right along with Aquinas as mm-hmm. mm-hmm. being one of the greatest theologians in the church's history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But see, what's wonderful, these, aren't, these folks aren't writing their theology from a uh, a university study. Augustine was a bishop of the church, so he's deeply engaged in the life of the church while he reads the Bible and while he reflects on the Bible and while he he writes his books. So you have Augustine from North Africa. You've got Ambrose, Mm -hmm. who, before he was a bishop of the church, was a Roman governor. Okay. So he's he's, uh, in... uh, in Italy, if memory serves me correctly, up near Milan, and but familiar with Rome and so on. And then you have Jerome, mm-hmm. who terribly irascible personality, <laughs> always fighting with somebody, <laughs> and yet um, one of the great biblical exegetes uh-huh. in the church's history. God, thank goodness, God can use people who aren't perfect, or we all we all have a problem. <laughs> and then the last. The last uh, uh, Latin speaker and writer would be Gregory the Great, who came from a a family of popes. And finally, uh, he all the while simply wanting to live a life of uh, peace and silence and calm. Mm -hmm. The church recognized his gifts, and so he he moved into uh, the... uh, papacy in rome okay so those are your eight great doctors so you've got these eight people that the church has kind of well, established. those are the eight well those are the eight great doctors but there are lots and lots of other folks who are, are bishops in the church and writing that, that uh, kind of fall into the category of church fathers yeah if you went to the ancient christian commentary in scripture and turn to either the front of the book or the back of the book, you would have their names listed. And they're, they're probably 
I just never counted it. There might well be over a hundred, maybe 150. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And you, you gave a term I heard once that might be helpful. I think I'm getting this right. Is it patristic proximity? The term was hermeneutical proximity. Hermeneutical meaning uh, interpretive proximity. What I meant by that was there's a tendency amongst modern Christians to think that if something is new or modern, it must be good. It must be the best. That's the exact opposite of what most Christians thought in the ancient world. Things that were new, things that were uh, not tested would have been viewed with some suspicion. Mm -hmm. So what I meant by hermeneutical proximity was, why aren't we spending more time with these folks? Because they lived very near to the time of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some of them knew apostles. So, for example, there was a, there's a church father by the name of Ignatius of Antioch who knew, if memory serves me correctly, knew the Apostle John. So, and then there's a series of letters that he wrote on his way to, to martyrdom in Rome, to ch- the church in Rome, the church in Smyrna, the church and so on. Mm-hmm. And so what I meant by hermeneutical proximity was if Ignatius is arguing that a biblical text has a given meaning, mm-hmm. I'm really going to listen carefully to him because he's very, very near to the people who knew Jesus, right. heard Jesus uh, teach, people like the Apostle John. And so that's what I meant by hermene- hermeneutical proximity. Mm-hmm. So if you... For me, I know this wouldn't be true of all, all the folks listening in, but for me, if I hear uh, ancient Christians arguing with a broad consensus that a biblical text has a given meaning or that God has been made known in Jesus, where Jesus is actually God, is the Father, is God, and the Spirit is God, arguing certain key theological truths, I'm going to really listen to them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll listen to them more uh, deeply than I would to the latest book that's come out uh, last week, whether it's theological issues, exegesis, or spiritual insights, because they were very concerned about prayer and uh, a healthy spiritual life, the spiritual disciplines, and so on. What I like about learning from the Church Fathers is there's a certain kind of reliability that generation of faithful Jesus followers have affirmed, yeah, this is helpful and that's uh, right. That's right. So for example, Calvin and Luther, they knew they had to comment on the church fathers. And so both Catholics and Protestants at the time of the Reformation were arguing that the position they were defending was the position of the church fathers. So they were viewed with great respect. They're not viewed as being um, infallible, but they, but they are viewed as being reliable, mm-hmm. trust, trustworthy guys who are surely list, worth listening to. If I came to a point where I was going to say to Augustine or I was going to say to uh, Gregory of Nazianzus or whoever it might be, I disagree. I think you're wrong. Well, I would have to really have thought something through carefully by that time. 
And what I what I like about your work, Chris, is is you're you're kind of pulling these general consensus together. Is that is that right? This is a well. I think Nate, I might put it this way: the general consensus was already there. So so it's so not like we have to pull things together to find the consensus. Uh, every time the church, for example, met in council and, for example, said, we believe, we believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was born of the Virgin Mary and so on. So when the church makes these declarations, I believe that there's a movement of the Holy Spirit that then, in those words, reflects a, a consensus that we can recognize and be encouraged by. Mm-hmm. You know, the work of the Holy Spirit in the ancient church providing us with guidance and direction. So in the, in the um, ethics book, where I think it's helpful to look at what they were saying about these issues that we're pondering today and trying to figure out how we should live today, is the world they lived in is not the 21st century. Right. Which means that it wouldn't surprise me if there are areas where they might be arguing for a given perspective ethically that we might, in the 21st century, say, I'm not sure you're seeing clearly at that point. Mm -hmm. But I would also say where they are likely to be seeing clearly would be in areas where we're likely to be seeing in a foggy way. For example, issues of wealth and poverty, which we wrote about in the book, or, uh, for example, service in the military. Mm-hmm. So there's a modern perspective on these issues that might be helpful or not helpful. So it's really helpful to go back to an, another period of time in human history where Christians were alive, they're reading the Bible, they're thinking through these issues. And particularly if they're strongly disagreeing with, with things that are just no-brainers for us, that's where I really want to listen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, for example, if they're saying all human life is valuable from the very beginning, from conception, if they're arguing this to be true, well, and say in the States, there are a lot of folks who would, uh, and sometimes uh, Christian folks who, who wouldn't agree with that. Well, at that point, then I want to really listen carefully to what they're arguing because they lived, for example, they lived in a society where children were regularly discarded, hmm. regularly discarded. You could walk through uh, almost any ancient city and find uh, children who had been what they called exposed by their parents, either because the parents couldn't afford to raise them or because uh, the head of the family, uh, that what was called the pater familias, had said, I don't want this child. And so they'd be, they'd be put out on, on garbage heaps. So some of these things they saw with children really informed them their view of life and, and has some really helpful ways, lenses for us to begin working with these issues today. Yeah, yeah let me say this. Life was dirt cheap in the Roman world. Dirt cheap. Sickness, death on a grand scale war, battle, lots and lots of poor people, very few rich people. So the Christian community stood out so sharply. If a plague broke out in a Roman city, 
which was often the case, the rich Romans who could get out got out quickly. The poor folks, because there wasn't a lot of work in the countryside, they had to stay in the city, and a lot of them just died. No one to care for them. Well, the Christian, the Christian community was known, rather than fleeing from the city, to move into, this, into the cities at those points to care for people. It caught, it caught the, Roman, uh, the Romans' attention. Why would you behave in such a way? Right. Very countercultural for that day. Oh, yeah, at that point. Mm-hmm. What, so we're, we're, we're getting ready to, in the book club, read through the book, and then we're going to talk some more, you and I, with digging in deeper. But what do you hope for people to gain from reading this work? Uh, I hope that, that they'll live closer to God <laughs> you know, in these er- key areas of human life. There's a chapter on war, a service in the military. There's a chapter on wealth and poverty. There's a chapter on all these life issues. I think it's called From the Cradle to the Grave, the exposure of, the, of children in the ancient world, how these folks felt about abortion. Abortion was practiced back then. It's really nasty business. Um, the kind of language they would use to describe what was happening. We, we talk about that issues of uh, have to do with family life, our sexual lives. And one of the chapters that I found real interesting was uh, the chapter on entertainment. Yeah. Surprised me to see that in there. And what was so striking to me about entertainment was how strongly they were opposed to violence as entertainment. Hmm. Now, in their world, violence as entertainment was people were actually <laughs> losing their lives. Right. You know, you had gladiators fighting in the arena. You had uh, execute, public executions as entertainment, battles being staged in the Colosseum and so on. Uh, races that were purposely uh, so dangerous, someone was apt to be killed. Well, maybe that's a little bit more like the modern world. Uh, so we don't, we, we, at least at this present time, we're not actually seeing people killed for entertainment's sake. But the level, for example, they would be really uncomfortable with watching Freddy Krueger go through the entire neighborhood eviscerating everybody mm-hmm. in sight. Mm-hmm. The, the idea of, of visual images as entertainment, mm-hmm. uh, visual images of violence. Uh, like boxing, MMA stuff, would that be concerning to them? I'm not so sh- sure that they would have said you can't go watch two ancient Greek wrestlers wrestling Mm -hmm. but i think that they would be uncomfortable with cage fighting for example Mm -hmm. where you're purposely trying to me the few times i've seen it uh, i remember in colorado springs i was sitting in a restaurant waiting to catch a plane and there were two guys in a cage quite literally trying to hurt hurt the uh, other guy to a severe extent so they could win so this idea of of um, violence is entertainment, violent sport as entertainment, their experience would have been the arena, not mm-hmm. a basketball game. So I think there's, there's a word there that they're speaking to us. Oh, for example, they, they were uncomfortable with the Roman theater because oftentimes the Roman theater was, was uh, body, 
ribald in a way that they didn't like. And then uh, they were what? Body? Body, B-A-W-D-Y. Yeah. Using sex as entertainment, commentary on sex. Mm-hmm. It would be like uh, some of the comedians today. Sure. Where it's just so over the top, so exaggerated. Well, that was just commonplace in the Roman world. And, and associate, but associated with theater was uh, the exploitation of children. Mm-hmm. the exploitation of women, uh, small boys outside uh, the entrance to a theater as part of the sex industry in these big Roman cities, women being exploited on the stage and then off the stage, uh, prostitution is on a rapid scale, people making money, lots of money, and people suffering as a result. So they're, they're so working with all these issues, and they have... Yeah, they, they, their world is a pretty tough world. Pretty tough world, and I think that some of the strictness that they sometimes show is a reflection of their awareness of how deeply some of these practices can hurt people or were hurting people. And I think some of this stuff is immediately relevant to um, to what we're uh, seeing uh, being produced in, in in film or in television and so on. Yeah. I don't, I don't watch a lot of it anymore because I know the effect it has on uh, my mind, a kid who grew up naturally attracted to violence. I had to have a strong no to that in my own life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when they start raising the volume level, rather than simply clicking off what they're saying, at the points where, that, where I sense myself becoming uncomfortable because such a different perspective is being presented to me, is at those very points that I want to listen carefully. And then I might say, I don't think I can buy it. I, I think we're going to disagree at that point. But I really want to listen carefully before I say, no, I, I don't th- think I can agree with you. I'm really thankful for the way, just kind of personally, that you've helped open the door to these figures that are a little intimidating to work with, but really helpful. It's good to be with you, Nate. I like working with you. (laughs) Thanks. Me too. Well, there you have it. You're welcome to join us in the book club as Chris helps us explore this work. Again, the book is titled Living Wisely with the Church Fathers. Hey, thanks for listening and have a great week.